Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. You guys can have a seat. We are surrounded by advertisements, <laughs> aren't we? They're everywhere we look. And any advertiser worth their grain of salt is going to tell you how your life will be made better if you choose to use that product, follow that pattern, consider this method. This is how your life will look better. You'll have tremendous personal benefit. You'll have unlimited joy. Could you imagine what it would look like if these advertisers would tell us what we'll actually experience? Could you imagine like, hey, if you buy this puppy, you're going to stay up all night long and they're going to pee all over your carpet. If you buy this cat, it's going to scratch your couch, ignore you, and act like it rules the place. You know, if you buy this Android, you'll get half the performance at quarter the cost. You know, imagine if, imagine if, (laughs) imagine if. Imagine if, if they gave you, like, told you what was going to happen with your kids. She'll absolutely capture your heart. She'll break your heart. She'll break your budget. And then someday, she'll leave your house for some guy named Todd that has an earring, Mountain Dew, and drives a motorcycle. <laughs> Could you imagine what that would be like? You know, by today's standards... Jesus was actually a a pretty bad marketer. He didn't write a blog on like, hey, here are three steps to a better you. A a new year, a new you. This is how your life is going to be made amazing and true. In fact, his approach was often the exact opposite. That he would travel from town to town telling people what it would cost them to gain the kingdom of God and what it would cost them to follow after him. He would say, hey, just like I lay down my rights to serve, just like I lay down these things that I deserve in order to make someone else's life better, if you're gonna follow me, he would say, you need to do just like I have done. We're in a series, and this series is called skeptical. (laughs) We're talking about skepticism, and here's just the definition we've been working off of. Skepticism means to not be easily convinced, to be doubtful, to have reservations. And to be truthful, of all the people that were around Jesus, all the people that gathered around this carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus was, was actually pretty skeptical that they understood him, that they understood what it meant to follow after the kingdom of God, that they would count the cost. Because for them, Jesus would travel from from city to city doing these amazing things. And he would do do miracles and heal people and, and feed them for free. And I think Jesus just wondered, are you like a teenager that's just here for a free lunch? Are you just here for these tricks that I do, these signs and wonders that prove that I'm the Messiah? Do you really understand what I'm all about? I think the question that I want us to consider this weekend, that wherever you may be in your spiritual kind of journey in this investigation into faith in Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, that you would ask yourself the question, am I 
am I a fan of Jesus or am I a follower of Jesus? Because you know what a fan is? A fan is someone who is enthusiastic as long as it meets their needs and makes their life better. I'll be a fan of Apple products as long as I think it makes me look cool and performs as well as I think it will. But the moment that it doesn't, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find something else. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I'm going to find something else that will, will do better. It, but a follower, a follower who's so, is someone who's willing to adapt their life for this principle that they believe to be true. Are you a fan or are you a, a follower? Are you a fan or are you a follower? We actually see this play out in all, all throughout Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 8. And I'd invite you to even grab one of those orange Bibles underneath your chairs. It's page 688 or maybe turn on your Bible if you have one. And here's what's happening. Jesus is actually leaning in to his disciples and saying, this is what it's going to cost to follow after me. And he would ask them, are you on the same page that I am? Are you thinking the same thing that I am? Are you just in it for the free lunch? Are you forcing me into a definition of what you think I am? Or do you really understand what the kingdom of God actually means? At this point in the story in Mark chapter eight, Jesus has been with his disciples for a few years and he's been traveling from town to town and, and what we see in Mark chapter eight, it opens and it's that scene that he has been healing people and doing amazing things and as a result of that, he was pretty good at drawing a crowd. Could you imagine if someone came through and could do what Jesus would do? He, he, they would just follow him out into the hillside. And so there he is with 4,000 people and they're listening to him talk about the kingdom of God. But then he realizes, hey, they're hungry. What are we gonna do about this, disciples? And he says, does anyone have food? Someone says, I've got some loaves. So Jesus prays and he multiplies these loaves and he feeds 4,000 people. It was amazing for these disciples to see that happen. And then, and then, Jesus goes and he heals a blind man. Nobody had healed a blind man. So the disciples are, are next to Jesus and they're thinking, man, this guy is awesome. And he's just on the top of the game. And look at all these people that are coming to be near him. And we get to be on the front row of that. We must be in a place of great, like we're distinguished. We're like, we're important people. Like this is great. We're just gonna keep riding that. He's just gonna keep being more and more popular. But I think Jesus, I know Jesus, knows these crowds that they're easily drawn in by the signs and the wonders. Just, just following after him for the convenience that he offers. But he knew that the same crowds that would shout Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna would be the same crowds that would say crucify him. So Jesus kind of plays like a times, like time out, time out guys. Let's, let's talk about this. And this is what he says. He says, hey guys, you need to know what it means for me to follow after God. Like when I follow after God, here's what it's gonna mean. It's gonna mean that I'm gonna suffer many things. That I'm gonna be oppressed by the religious establishment. I will be killed and I will be raised from the dead in three days. And Peter, Peter, I love fat mouth Peter, foot in the mouth Peter. He just says, Jesus, come here. And he pulls him aside. 
He says, Jesus, you're messing up our brand, man. This isn't gonna attract people, all this talk about suffering. That's not your trajectory. Your trajectory is up and to the right. What are you talking about? And it says that Peter rebuked Jesus. And the language used there was that like, he kept rebuking him. And Jesus just stops and he goes right back at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. How would that feel to have Jesus call you Satan? And I think it's funny because the book of Mark is actually Peter like telling the story of Jesus and Mark is writing it down. And so Peter is actually sharing that Jesus called him Satan, which is really embarrassing. So we've said this before, but that for me is an evidence like this stuff's not made up. When you're making it up, you don't share things that embarrass you. But here's what Peter recorded, that Jesus turned around and called him Satan. And Jesus is saying, hey, 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 guys, you need to know what it means that I am a suffering servant of God. You need to know what it costs me. And if you are going to follow me, guess what that means? That means it's your, it's your pathway too. This isn't, this isn't going to be up and to the right. At least not in the short term. This isn't gonna be all, all popular. And it's gonna feel good. And every single weekend, all the chairs are gonna be filled and everyone's gonna come in here smiling and leave smiling. No, 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 that's not what he says. He says, time out, guys. Come here, everyone come close, come here. So Jesus, this is what he says in Mark 8, 34. He says he calls the crowds and the disciples. Okay, everybody, take a knee. Take a knee. Here we go. I need, I need to tell you. I need to level with you about, about what you're in for. He says, whoever wants to be, and then he uses this word that, that we use so often but don't really know what it means. Whoever wants to be my disciple Now, the word Christian actually wasn't used for quite a long while, even after Jesus was done with his ministry. It was first used in Antioch that they were called Christians. Before that, they were called followers of the way. They were called disciples. And that word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, mathetes. It's where we get the word math, math from. We've got a lot of math teachers here, by the way, in our church. We just got gobs of them, which is great because I can only count to four over and over again. I'm a musician. I'm grateful for these people. Math, the word math, what it means is to be someone who is a learner, to be a learner, a follower. Now, in Jesus' time, it was, re- it was a regular thing. You would find a rabbi from a local town and you would follow that rabbi and you would kind of find a rabbi that you think had a set of rules that were acceptable for you. So if you're like, you know, I think I can follow this one and this one, but not that one. Okay, that rabbi's kind of in that camp. This guy asked too much, so I'm not going to follow him. So they would regularly follow after a rabbi. And that rabbi would tell them, you know, this is what it means for you to be right with God and how to follow the laws of Moses and what it means for you. Now today, we don't hitch ourselves to a rabbi like that. But truth is, we're surrounded by multiple competing worldviews uh, about, about how it helps inform ideas for us, ideas like, like justice, ideas like what is good and what is virtue come from these different worldviews, what it means to be a good person. Now, much of this discipleship that happens to us is something that is passive, is something that happens unconsciously. And most of, the peop- most of us don't think that we're disciples at all, but the truth is this. It's just a question of who 
or what you're following. And the things that we're discipled by happen unconsciously in a thousand different ways. And the insidious thing is this, is that it happens without us even knowing that it's occurring. It informs our worldview. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to be my disciple, you have the opportunity to make a conscious choice that you're going to seek after me and if you're going to follow me, this is what it means. It means that you're going to say yes to me as your rabbi. And that means that you say no to everything else. Every other competing worldview goes away. And you say yes to me. If you're going to be someone who follows after me and you're not just a fan, you're not just an enthusiast for when it suits you, but as soon as it doesn't, you hop onto the next thing. If you're going to be a follower, you're not just dialing in on the radio station, slapping a bumper sticker on it and calling that your faith. That this is going to be something that changes your life habits. You're modeling your life after me and you're going to do as I do. He says, whoever would be my disciple, this is what's going to be true for you. And then he, he gives us two or three things that we can think about this weekend. He says that you must deny yourself. If you're going to be my disciple, you deny yourself. And this, guys, you know this, this is so countercultural. Our culture says, don't deny yourself, find yourself. You are the greatest good, and your highest goal is to find your truest self. That's why, like, every Disney Pixar movie for the last 15 years has had some variation on that theme. You go and you find yourself. Find your inner beauty. If you would search hard enough, you could find your true self. And if you do that, you'll ultimately find the happiness and the joy that you're after. And the culture believes that because, listen, if this life is all there is, then why not? If this is all we get to experience, the most logical thing for us to do is to compile, compile all of our treasures, all of our wealth, make it all about us. Why would I sacrifice for someone else's good? Why would I do that? Je so Jesus, he steps in and says, a person that, that is following after me is gonna be somebody who denies that most basic impulse. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Because he knows that if we try to satisfy our soul in pursuing self, in pursuing self by going after that job or that relationship or that experience, that we will continue to chase and chase and chase and chase. And it will never satisfy our souls because our spouses were never designed to take the weight of our soul. And our children we're never designed to carry the weight of our souls. And if you want to know how to crush them, tell them, hey, how you perform in school and who you become in life is my sole determiner of, of my joy and my identity in life. They cannot bear, they cannot stand underneath that. 
All it will do is crush them. That's why the most glamorous and the most powerful people in the world, they're on their third and their fourth marriages and they can't stay faithful to their spouse and they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and they're obsessed with plastic surgery and they have massive homes and they still can't function properly. They have everything and they keep searching for more. That's why Mick Jagger said this, I can't get no satisfaction though I try and I try and I try and I try here's what Jesus is saying there's nothing outside of you in the world that's going to satisfy you and there's nothing inside of you that's going to satisfy you either it takes something outside of you and outside of the world to deal with that hole inside us He says, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to deny yourself. Notice he doesn't say, you've got to deny things. You've got to deny things and you just got to wear a burlap sack and sit in an ash heap and do nothing but be miserable all day long and live out in the woods where no one's around you. He doesn't say that. He says, deny, not things, but that's that's asceticism. That's just suffering for suffering's sake. He says, Deny yourself. It means that you take yourself off the throne of your own heart. You die to yourself, to your preferences. It's, it's choosing to say that someone else is more important than me. It's turning your heart, listen, from your own self-worship and your own self-interest. And here's why Jesus would say that's true. Because he would say there's no way for you to love God and love other people if all you're thinking about is yourself. There's no way to do that with a pure and undivided heart because a self-focused person, they might do good things, they might give money, but when they give money, they do it to build a monument. They want to see their name on a plaque. They want the praise and they want the adulation from, undulation from other people. That's, that's what a selfish person does. A selfless person, though, starts saying, man, how can I put someone else's concerns ahead of me? Jesus says, deny yourself. He says, deny yourself, and then he says, take up your cross. Now, we use that as an idiomatic metaphor to to represent, hey, I'm just gonna bear my burden. But for these first century Jews, that was not an expression that was a metaphor that was established for them. For them, it was a contextual reality of being a, a Jew in Palestine in the first century especially with the Romans occupying everything. In this time period, here's what would happen. Rome was dominating everything and people didn't like that. So occasionally there would be uprisings and someone would try to rebel against Rome. So what would happen is this. Those people that rebelled against them were forced to carry the crossbeam of their own crucifixion. It was a way of demonstrating submission to Rome by carrying someone's cross throughout the streets. So to take up your cross was to demonstrate publicly your submission and obedience to the authority that you had rebelled against. And remember, at this point, they had no frame of reference to understand that Jesus was going to die on, on the cross. They had no idea that it was a foreshadowing of how Christ would die So Jesus is saying, hey, you live in submission to God even at your own detriment. It's this visible sign of obedience. 
Notice this. He says that you should take up your cross. You take up your cross. He didn't say take up my cross. He didn't say take up Jesus' cross. He said take your cross. Not everyone who was a disciple of Jesus was going to be in a place where they would end up dying for their faith. The, the, the majority of his direct disciples did. The majority of the 12 did. And many of the early Christians did. But Jesus would regularly say to people who wanted to follow after him, like, for example, the Samaritan woman at the well, she heard Jesus said, hey, you've not just had one husband, you've had five husbands. Now she's like, well, I want to follow after you. And he says, no, I want you to go back to your town and I just want you to live out what it means to be a Christ follower and a God follower and a God fearer in that land. And then the demoniac who, was, who had demons and no one could deal with this guy who was this raging madman up in the hills. Jesus comes in and casts him out. And remember the story about like they, they go into these pigs and the pigs run into the sea. It's this amazing thing. And this guy is healed from this and he says, I want to follow after you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, go back to your town and live out being a God-fearing person in that, in that space. Taking up your cross doesn't have to mean taking up Jesus' cross, but it means being obedient to what God has revealed to you in his word and accepting the consequences without reservations that you would choose to write God a blank check. Now, to certain generations, they'd be like, what is that? <laughs> a blank check. When was the last time? I mean, most people don't even have checks in your pocketbook or anything. Remember like a blank check? There was a movie in the 90s called Blank Check. This kid who got hit or whatever and this rich man says, okay. He writes his name, he signs it and he gives him a blank check. Right? I trust you. I trust you with whatever you see fit. Contrast that with a gift card. A gift card says, I trust you $5. <laughs> I trust you up to $25. Jesus is saying, you take up your cross. It's a blank check without reservation. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And here's what you need to do. Follow me. Don't be a fan. Be a follower. In fact, he would say this that when it comes to someone who says they're about my kingdom and God's kingdom, that you would be a little Christ. That as you walk around your world, as you rub shoulders with people, as you interact with your spouse and your dad and your mom and, and people at work, that they would look at you and they would see someone who is trying to live out the way that Jesus lived out. That you would be someone who wouldn't insist on your own rights but deny yourself. And then Jesus says this. This is amazing. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to do all of that, this cost that's like a lot. <laughs> I don't want you to do it just for suffering's sake. That's foolish. That's asceticism. That's ignorant. Who would do that? You don't just suffer just to suffer. Instead, what he spells out in the next verse is the great paradox that we have to wrap our brain around. He says this, whoever wants to save their life Whoever wants to save their life and their well-being and look at who they are and say, you know what, this is good. I want to have a better life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. It's a paradox. Do you want joy and satisfaction 
and a fullness of life. And, and that word that he uses here for life is the word that we get like psyche from. Psyche, it's not just your physical body, it's the fullness of your identity and who you are in your mind and your soul and your heart and your body. If you want to save your life, you're gonna lose it. But when you do that, when you do that, when you write a blank check, when you say, God, I'm not just gonna trust you with with a gift card, but I'm gonna say, without reservations, I'm gonna lay it down for you. He says, you think you're giving up a lot, but you need to know what's on the other side of this equation. It's a great paradox, it's a great exchange. I love watching movies with my kids of the kind of movies I grew up watching on like TBS on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon. Which by the way, like you go watch them now and they're not edited, they were always edited for TV, so now I like watch it with my kids. I'm like, I don't remember being like this. But there's a movie I grew up watching called Brewster's Millions. It was with Richard Pryor and John Candy, and he was an out of, Richard Pryor was an out of luck minor league baseball player who was on his last dime, and he gets a phone call and says, hey, I'm a lawyer, and I want you to come to my office, and he shows up, and, and he says, what you don't know is that you have a wealthy, wealthy uncle that just passed away, and he's leaving you everything, and they press play on a video, and, and the uncle says, he says, hey, I have $300 million dollars and all of it goes to you. But here's the catch. You only get to have the 300 million or you can have 30 million. But in order to get the 300 million, you have to spend 30 million in 30 days. And at the end of all of it, you can't have a single asset except for the shirt on your back and nobody can know what you're up to. And so the whole movie, the whole movie is him just spending it as quickly as he can spend it, saying, I'm gonna give up this 30 million now because there's this greater thing and no one else is gonna understand it. And when I'm done, it's gonna look like I have nothing and people are gonna call me a fool. Why would you waste it? Why are you being so wasteful? He's, but he can't tell them, like this, you don't understand what's on the other end of this equation. He trades the lesser for the sake of the greater. Psychologist Jordan Peterson hints at this in his best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life. This is what he says. It'll be on the screen. Long ago in the dim mists of time when we began realizing that the reality was structured as if it could be bargained with, we learned that behaving properly now in the present, regulating our impulses, considering the plight of others could bring rewards in the future in a time and a place that did not yet exist. Sacrifice now to gain later. Sacrifice will improve the future. And that's what Jesus is saying. Sacrifice now, give it up now. The cross, the gospel, the kingdom of God costs you. It needs to cost you something. But when you do that, you're making an exchange. It's worth it because it's a win for all of eternity. It's giving up 80 years now for 80 million years beyond that. And he puts forth a proposition of a great exchange. If you would trade in your life, if you would trade in your self-worship and your self-exaltation, you would trade in all of that to worship him and exchange, this is what you'll find that your soul can actually be satisfied. That when you obey him, you'll find that he fully sustains you. When you surrender to him, you find that then, and only then will you truly be free. Jesus would say, look, 
Don't deceive yourself. <laughs> Disciples, you, <laughs> you're here and you're seeing the free food and the miracles. You gotta recognize how diseased your own heart is. It's so grievous, it's so grievous that nothing less than a complete emptying of self will deal with it. And for so many of us, we try to deal with cancer in our heart by going to the spa. If I can just get some nice uh, lotion, then my cancer will be fine. <laughs> and Jesus says the problem is so much deeper than that because there's idols and there's self-worship and nothing less than completely removing yourself off the throne of your own heart and putting me into that place will ever satisfy you and will ever deal with the things in your own heart. And if you really wanna know what a disciple looks like, it's someone who recognizes that and says yes, I will make that great exchange. And it's scandalous. It's scandalous. So what do we do with that? How do we deal with all of this talk about denying of yourself? If you're a, if you're a non-believer and you're looking at this, it would make a, a lot of sense why someone would say, man, I don't know that I'm convinced. That's hard to accept. But if you're a Christ follower, what do we do with this? I, I just wanna throw three thoughts at you just to think about and you can see if this is something that you can integrate into your life. But here's what I wanna throw at you. The first is this, that you would define and don't defend. Define and don't defend. What do I mean by that? Well, every... Uh, a, a, a pastor friend of mine told me that. He said, he said, define and don't defend because every single relationship that you're gonna be a part of is gonna be some opportunity for you to deny yourself because there's gonna be some conflict, something that happens in the middle of that and you're gonna be really tempted to defend yourself, insist on your rights. Instead, he says, define who you are rather than defend your actions. So that would mean this. That would mean that someone would say, you know what, I'm going to, define who I am in Christ and let that identity inform my activity. And so now, instead of saying, I'm gonna defend my own rights, I'm gonna say, you know what, if I'm a Christ follower, it means that I lay my rights down for someone else. It might show up like this. In my neighborhood, I'm not gonna lose my beans when my, dog's, when my neighbor's dog steps in my yard. I'm not gonna do that. Right, right, McMonagles? <laughs> because my dog's been over at your house a couple times, because that's not what a disciple does. And when my kids mess up, I'm gonna say, you know what, I feel this deeply, they've sinned, and I feel like, you know what, it's like a shot, just not against right and wrong, but it's a shot against me, somehow it reflects me. But if I'm gonna define myself by being a follower of Christ rather than to defend myself, and what I feel like it's do me, I'm gonna say, their actions don't define me. Christ defines me. And what that enables me to do is now I don't have to be that yelling, ogre, bitter, controlling dad. Now I can step in and I can be gentle because their actions don't define me. Christ defines me. I don't have to defend myself or my rights. I can just say this is who I am as a disciple of Christ. It means this. It means that when not if, when I mess up, when I'm caught in a lie, when I do something I shouldn't do. I'm not gonna defend myself and say, but look at what they did. Like, man, you won't believe what, how they messed up in the first place. That's what Adam did in the, all, in, in the, in the garden. Look at what the woman, the woman did this. It's an, old, it's an old tactic that's as old as the earth. I'm not gonna do that. If I'm defined by Christ, I say, you know what? 
I did that. I, I'm going to own my odor. Because if I'm in Christ, it means that God, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. When God looks at me, I'm credited as righteous in Christ. So I can own my odor and I can say, I, I sinned. And I sinned bad. That's not who I am and who I want to be. I can own that. It means when I'm wronged, I'm not going to retaliate because I'm a Christ follower. And that's not what Jesus did. He didn't retaliate. He turned the other cheek. He walks the extra mile. So I'm not going to defend. I'm, I'm, I'm going to deny. I'm going to die to self and then I'm going to define myself by, by who Christ is. Listen, because defending yourself, that's the way of the world. That's not, like we don't have to be trained to do that. Anyone that's had a kid knows. Like the moment they get in trouble, yeah, but my sister did this. No, no. <laughs> like you see that all day long. It's the way of the world. The way of Christ is to deny yourself. And listen, it doesn't mean that you let someone abuse you or take advantage of you, but it means that you take on the mindset of Christ. He was the only one who deserved to be worshiped. And yet Philippians says this, Christ, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In Mark chapter 10, it says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we don't defend, we define. Second thing to think about, and just maybe a question to ponder here, are there any areas in your life that you're inclined to complain about? that you're inclined to complain about? More than one, maybe. If you're, a, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're denying yourself in relationships and in circumstances, we should come to the place where we recognize that difficulty and pain and suffering and frustration is just a part of the gig. It's just what we're signing up for because Jesus' disciples were like, no, it's always gotta be up and to the right. More bread, more miracles. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. This is, not, this is not gonna play out like that. So when it happens, don't be surprised. That's why he was telling them. Don't be surprised that the Son of Man has to suffer. I'm gonna die and I'm gonna bring myself back from the dead in three days difficulty and suffering is part of the gig. He says this in John 15. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you also. If you're gonna be a little Christ, it means that you're gonna have difficulty and suffering. This has been a challenging two weeks. I've shared with you guys. Thank you for caring for me. Many have and prayed for me as I've, God's seen fit to afflict me with vertigo in the last two weeks and I'm getting better. I've walked around and I didn't fall down. You guys should have seen yourself last week. Like every time I would lean forward on the chair, everyone's like, oh, is he gonna fall out? For whatever reason, God's seen it fit, fit to afflict me. And in, in the last uh, in a couple weeks, as we've been getting ready to kind of make our move to the elementary school, there's a lot of tasks and engineering processes to kind of make all that move. And so I, I've been working and, and trying to work, and, and the vertigo has slowed me down, and it's made it, difficult, in some, some cases painful to do that. And, and I'm sitting here working on this stuff and I just find myself not being, if I'm really honest, all that excited about the move. Because it's gonna take more work. It's gonna be more difficult. Now, <laughs> I do believe that this move, the juice is gonna be worth the squeeze. And God's gonna bless that. But in the middle of all of that, 
I was just starting to feel down about kind of losing this space that we've had as a full-time facility for the past two years and, and what that means. And now I'm gonna have to set up and now I'm gonna have to do this stuff and I'm gonna have to recruit people to help and we need people to help and how's this all, now we've got all this stuff I gotta do and I'm just starting to feel down on myself and I'm thinking, God, when's, where's our great victory and your great provision at the last minute and why are we finding ourselves in this situation? And I just feel like Jesus said <laughs> the same rebuke to me, like, did you think this was gonna all be up and to the right? Did you think this was all gonna be nothing but that which is leisurely and easy for you? Did you think following my kingdom was gonna be an exercise in efficiency? Is that what it means to be on mission? Whatever's easy? And I just found myself processing this and going, God, I, I, I missed it. I was off. I was off. I had to repent. I had to repent. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So let me ask you a question. Does following Jesus cost you anything? This is an uncomfortable passage that frankly I wish I, I didn't have to preach. Does following Jesus cost you anything? Does your life look any differently because you've said yes to Christ and his ways? How does your life look different? Imagine I came to you and I said, this is amazing, I found the one in my life. Her name's Jennifer. She's good for me, she's faithful to me, she's worthy of companionship, she's lovely and pleasant. She's the one for me and I've married her. But then when you look at my life and how I act, what you would see is this. I stay out all night with, with the dudes, drinking. I'm, I'm sleeping around. I don't live in the same house as her. We don't have a shared bank account. We don't share resources. I'm not sacrificing for any of her needs. All I do is play five hours of video games every single day. We never see each other. If, if if you were a friend of mine, you would be scratching your head. What do you mean <laughs> you married her? Do you live in the same house? No, I don't, I don't do that. That's too much, too much cost. Do you, do you have a joint bank? No, no, we don't, we don't, I don't wanna, I don't wanna give up, I don't wanna give up that much, <laughs> you know. Okay, what about the whole fidelity thing? I like to keep my options open. Like you would look at me and say, you don't know what it means to be in a relationship. It hasn't cost you anything. It hasn't cost you anything. Well, you know, I would walk next to her and hold her hand, but I'm kind of embarrassed to do that. Like, I'm not in a relationship with her. I have a nice idea. I might even say, yeah, I can agree that she's really handy and she looks good and she does, like, she cooks well and I can agree to all of that intellectually, but I haven't changed my life for her at all. If someone were to look into your life, would they, would they say, I can see how you spend your resources differently. I can see that you're willing to be embarrassed because you believe that Jesus is more than just a good idea, that he's actually your king. And he's your Lord and he's your boss and you've written him a blank check 
and you're not dealing in gift cards, but you just without reservation say, you know what, I'm, I, I'm doing my best to follow after him. Would someone look into your life and see that? Would they see you saying, no, I'm, I'm too embarrassed. Too embarrassed to say that, that he's mine and I'm his. And I don't, I don't like preaching these kinds of things. But when you read Jesus' words, he would look at his disciples. You just want to shake them a little bit. You want to shake them and say, are you missing it? Are you seeing me? Are you following me? Or are you just in it for how it makes you feel comfortable and how maybe it gives you good networks and like it makes you feel like you're better than someone else? Or Jesus would have even stronger words than this. He would say, if anyone is not willing to give up, then they're not worthy of me. So I don't, like, I don't like preaching it, but I would rather preach it than to pretend. Uh, so I just want you to think about that. How, how is my life any different because of Jesus? Is there an observable evidence? You know, there's some practical ways that Jesus asks us to step into this. It's gonna be happening here in a month. Um, gonna do the baptism thing. We do it a couple different times, but you know, I, I talk a lot about baptism because it's this picture of going public. And honestly, I spend time like trying to convince people to do this thing um, as if somehow it doesn't cost you, as if somehow getting in the water isn't embarrassing. Like it is. Like what? what when else do we do that? That's weird. Why does he have us do that? I don't know, but maybe it's just because it should cost you somehow. It should be embarrassing. And I think I turn that down sometimes too much. I think about what, um, I think about what our friends who are missionaries in, in Asia that are working with refugees who came out of Islam say that, they said, when someone gets baptized, they, they say, are you ready to lose your life for Jesus before they will baptize them. And I wonder if I turn down the heat a little too much on baptism. I wonder if it's the right thing for there to be some heat in some of that. Just to show Jesus that you love him. So that's available and I'll put that call out there just as a way to step into that and not to guilt but just to say there's an opportunity. If you've never taking that step. It's something that's available for you. It costs. Our faith costs us, but Jesus says there's an exchange and it's beautiful and it's lovely and it's totally worth it. Trade the 30 for the 300. Trade the 80 for the 80 million. It's totally worth it. Let me pray for you and then we're just gonna worship together. God, I don't like these messages. I don't like preaching them. I don't like receiving them because it's uncomfortable if it what, but if it were not for your promises of how it pays off in the end, it would feel nothing but sadness. God, thank you that you even offer up such an exchange. It's a beautiful thing. God, help us all to think about these things and consider them and integrate them into our hearts uh, today and, and beyond. 
God, would we say when you look at our hearts and our minds and how we live that there's a real alignment with your kingdom and your desires for us? That we would say, Christ, be magnified and the altar of my life it would be laid down in front of you and that we would say, I'm not gonna bow down to the idol of self, but I'm gonna deny self, take up the cross and follow after you. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.